0: Praises to God together.
1: Christ we have life and we have power to live and we pray Lord today as we continue in worship that we would know that power of Christ in us help us to come awake in you we know that you're here we know that you want to do amazing things among us and in us pray that you would give us a sense of joy and anticipation about all you want to do. We pray this through Christ. Amen. As the body of Christ gathered in this place today, let us share words of greeting with our family. just mentioned a couple of things uh, that are in your, um, in your bulletin. Uh, tonight, small groups are meeting and Koinonia is at 7 in Wesley Chapel. And uh, also note that uh, Logos Bible studies begin this week. And these are student-led studies that meet in the homes of community members and uh, basically for students. So we'd love to have you be a part of the group. You see the information listed there. If you have any questions... Uh, feel free to contact us at the church office or you can talk to me afterwards or Pastor Mike and we will uh, make sure that you get some directions with that. But we'd love to have you be a part of those studies. Also, I don't know if any of you here have uh, children in the Wednesday night programs or maybe you work with those programs, uh, but Wednesday night the, the girls club will not be meeting here at the church. They have a swim party, so they'll be meeting up at the college, so just note that. There are always uh, concerns for prayer in the bulletin. Uh, Things related to us here as well as things going on around the world. And one of the things that's happening around the world is uh, John Aronson uh, from our congregation, uh, professor at the college, is now in the Sudan on a uh, peacemaking mission. And a little write-up here in the insert in the bulletin just gives you a little bit of an idea of what he's doing. And we want to pray for that effort and to pray that God will work miraculously. And honestly, that's a situation like many in the world where only if God works miraculously can anything change. But God can do that, and He wants to do that. And so we want to be in prayer for John and and the work there as well. There are uh, a lot of people who are involved in ministry in the church, and uh, people who work with children, work with youth, uh, work with adults, children, people who work uh, things related to college ministry or other ministries of the church, some of the things happen on Sunday mornings with Children's Church or Sunday school or here in the worship. Other things are in the evenings leading and working with Koinonia or working in small groups. And things go on during the week, the Wednesday night children's program. And some of you, I think, probably work in those. There are all kinds of things that are happening. People work on sermon committees and organizational bodies to help the ministry be most effective. And we want to take a moment this morning to, um, to pray for you. And to ask for God's grace upon you. So, if you are involved in the ministry of the church in some form, your teacher or helper, um, you know, you're involved with children or youth or adults, or you do music or you, you know, whatever the case may be, and whatever day of the week it may take place, I want to ask you just to stand for a moment so we can pray for you. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for every person standing here. We appreciate their willingness to give of themselves, their time, their energy. And we thank you for the things that you have done through them and for the things that you are going to do. Each one of them standing here represents many others who are involved in ministry. And we pray for every person here that you would give them a sense of anointing and, and a sense of your power and your strength in the ministry to which you've called them. Father, we believe that as we work together and as we work with each other, amazing things happen, but only in the power of your spirit. And so we pray that your spirit would infuse our efforts, our gifts, and all that we do Lord, we pray that you will give strength and wisdom to every person standing here and that you will give them a sense of confidence that in their area of ministry, you have gone before them and you will be there after them and you are with them in the moment. Lord, thank you for each person. Fill them with joy in serving and may the work of the ministry keep moving forward as we grow in you, as we lead people to you, as we serve you by serving one another. Pour out your blessing on each one. And we pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. I'm going to ask the ushers to to come and uh, assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings.
2: I'm not And oh, will see how great, how great is
1: our God. We have the opportunity, invitation from our great God to, to pray to Him, to pour out our hearts before Him. And as we do that, the altar rail is open. If you'd like to use this as a place where you come and pray, I invite you to join me. Otherwise, please be seated. Father, you are a great God. Far beyond our understanding... You are God great in power and in majesty and in love. And we come to worship you today. Father, in this moment of worship, we have to admit that we're all wrestling with burdens of one kind or another. Anxiety, grief, a sense of hopelessness, despair. Sometimes it's it's busyness or the pressure of expectations. Sometimes we forget about each other, that our lives are, are really intertwined with each other. Sometimes, Father, it's it's the sin that we can't let go of. It's the relationship that we have marred. It's the hurt and the pain that we feel deep inside of us from rejection and disappointment. Lord, this morning we come and we we pour out our hearts to you. We thank you for hearing our prayers even in this moment as we pray them. Father, a world is a, a sea of hurting people. Famine, poverty, slavery, abuse, insecurity. We pray that you will bring healing to our world and that you will give us such a passion, the passion of Christ to be channels of peace and truth and compassion and justice. That through our witness, the world would see you, see Christ in all of His glory. We pray for John in the ministry in the Sudan. Protect him and watch over him, and give him grace and wisdom as he works in this difficult circumstance. We pray, Father, that you will bring peace to the Middle East and other countries of the world, and. That you would be glorified as your church is a presence for good and for justice and for salvation. Father, we pray that you will help us today to pray confidently because of who you are, and with joy because we know that you hear our prayers, and with gratitude because you have done so much and in trust. Because you have promised to do so much more. Let our lives be fully open to you. That our natural default. Is humble obedience. Transparent worship. Through the grace of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Remembering the prayer that. He taught his disciples to pray. Our father.
0: Today's scripture can be found in Judges, uh, the book, book of Judges, chapter 11. I'll be reading selected verses. The book of Judges is the account of Israel's history following the death of Joshua. Following the death of this great leader and the elders who outlived him, Israel began to spiritually deteriorate. Judges recounts a repeated cycle of Israel rejecting God, God allowing them to be oppressed by foreign nations, Israel crying out to God for help, and God raising up a leader whom God empowers to, to rescue them. Judges 11 is set in the context of Israel being oppressed by the Ammonites. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his, fo- from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel— The elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tov. Come, they said, be our commander, so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me, will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord at Mitzpah. Jephthah attempts to work out the situation with the Ammonite king, but to no avail. We pick up the story at verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mitzpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down, and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept, because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year, the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Down into darkness
1: Father, we thank you that you are good and merciful and gracious to us. As we continue in worship, speak into our hearts through your word. Reveal the truth about ourselves and about you. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Amen. Would you consider yourself a superstitious person? Maybe a little bit? A lot of people in the world are. You know what I mean? Just think of all the different things that have become a part of our culture about that we consider superstitions. Bad luck or good luck. You know, black cat running in front of you. Or um, stepping on a crack. You know, we used to, as kids, you know, we'd say, step on a crack, break your mother's with his back. Uh, I never wanted to step on a crack, you know, I didn't want to break my mother's back. You know, we, then you have uh, walking under a ladder. Another thing, though that i got to tell you, that just seems like common sense not to do that. That seems kind of stupid to walk under a ladder. But, you know, we have, we have all of these these things. And people, I know people who carry a lucky coin in their pocket, a uh, rabbit's foot or something. I know people who wear, say they have a lucky suit when they go for a job interview. They'll have to scratch my head and say, if you're still going for job interviews, how lucky really is that suit? And, you know, and to do that, I mean, you see a lot of superstitions, particularly in athletics, in sports. I was asking someone this morning, I don't think soccer is probably a, a, a huge sport that engenders superstitions. But baseball certainly is. Maybe it's because there's a lot more time you have in baseball. But, you know, if you watch a baseball game and you watch a batter step into the batter's box and all the different things that they do in between every pitch... And managers won't, will not walk on a line when they, when they step on the field, the white lines. But it's not just baseball, tennis as well. If you've ever seen Rafael Nadal play a tennis match, you've watched him at the changeover. He sits in his chair, he puts his, has his towel just perfectly on the chair, and his racket's pointing a certain direction. And he has these two bottles of water, and when he gets up to go back to play, he positions them exactly in front of each other, and he turns the labels on both of them toward whichever end of the court he's playing on. And he has this thing of his socks have to be exactly fifteen centimeters above his ankle, and I mean just all these things and i 'm scratching my head thinking, a guy especially like that who is so successful he's, he's one of the, probably one of the top players in the world, something in his mind says, "I will play better, I have a better chance of winning if I follow these rituals than if i don 't and instead of it being just about his skill level and his preparation and the work he's put in—he these things. There's something about controlling that. This week, one of the Cincinnati Reds pitchers threw a no hitter, and it made, reminded me back in 1978. We went to a Reds game and saw Tom Seaver pitch a no hitter. That was pretty awesome. And as it got to like the fifth or sixth inning, everybody's starting to have the sense that hey, this might happen. And I can distinctly remember because it's so. I can tell you now, it's so stupid. But I can distinctly remember watching that game. And as it started getting like, hey, this could happen. For some reason, my hands were getting sweaty. and it was a hot summer night. And, and I know, and I started rubbing my fingers through my hands like that. And I got to thinking, you know, I'll just do that after every pitch. And so between every pitch, I'm doing this, this ritual every time. And it worked. He threw a no-hitter. You know, there's something in our minds that wants to believe that we can somehow control what we feel is uncontrollable. It's ludicrous to think that me sitting up in the 74th row, rubbing my fingers, had any bearing on what was going on with those athletes on the field. You know, as though the batter steps in the box, he's looking up and I'm like, got it. Okay, I can bat now. You know, and yeah, we do the same thing. And, you you know, you sit at home, you wear your jersey for the bills or whoever you root for. And, you know, and obviously for a number of years that jersey is not working. But, you know, we have these things that we, we sort of feel like we can have some kind of control over things that are uncontrollable. And it's really ludicrous when you think about it. And yet, that idea of trying to control what feels out of control is, is at the heart of the story that we read in Genesis or Judges 11 about Jephthah. Jephthah's story is, is a very real, modern, contemporary story for us. He's born into a home where he is an illegitimate child of his father, who's head of the home. His mother is a prostitute. And as he gets older, and his stepbrothers say, Hey, you're not getting our inheritance. And they kick him out of the home. And he takes off up to the northern part of Israel. And he gets around him some guys who are a pretty questionable character. And they form a gang. And they survive as a gang in that area of the country. And they become famous as warriors. And, and as we saw in the reading, the Israelites at this time are being oppressed by the Ammonites... And they've had enough and they realize Jephthah is a great warrior and the people of the town of Gilead in that area say, let's go see if he'll help us. And they go to him and they say, would you help us defeat the Ammonites? And he says what every one of us would say. Oh, so you want me now? Right? We understand that response. You get kicked out of a study group and then they realize, hey, they have something to contribute. Would you come back and help us? You know, and, and so he says, well, yeah, I'll help you, but there's some conditions. And you have another instance of a, of a character in the Old Testament who is all about deception and bargaining and trying to control life. And he makes a deal with them that if he, if he takes over and he defeats the Ammonites, they'll make him head of this area of Israel. And so he prepares for battle. And he's about to go into battle. The Spirit of God comes upon him. I don't know what that feels like exactly, but it must be amazing. Enough so that the writer of Scripture says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And he was filled, I'm guessing, with some kind of new energy and new confidence about fighting this battle. And God is saying to him, we're going to win. You've got it. But Jephthah has spent his whole life trying to control what's out of control and bargaining with people and making deals. And so as he's just about to go into battle, even though the Spirit of God has come upon him, he just can't help making one more deal with God. One more bargain. God, if you give me this victory, because I don't want to lose face with the people that have now called me back. If was bad enough that they kicked me out of the home and out of the country, they brought me back. I've got to win this battle. If you give me victory, the first thing that comes out of my house at home is yours. I'll sacrifice it, a burnt offering to you. And he goes into battle. They win. He becomes the the leader of the Ammonites of Israel. It's a great celebration. He makes his way home. And just as he turns into his yard, who comes out of his house but his daughter? And the celebration turns to mourning and sorrow. And as the story ends, he sacrifices his daughter. Now, my perspective is, as I read the story... You look at the Old Testament, and God's very clear. If you make a vow, you better keep it. If you make a vow, and saying, you know, be careful about the vows you make. There's a good example of that. But if you make a vow, you'd better keep it. But it seems to me that this is a circumstance where the right thing for Jephthah to do would have been to say, wait a second, that was a stupid, rash thing to do. I'm not going to keep it. Even if that means that I lose my life, I'm saving my daughters. Now, I'm talking, looking at this from thousands of years back, so it's pretty easy for me to look at the situation and say, man, I can't believe he did that. Because the reality is there are times when all of us are willing to sacrifice people we love to get what we want. Now, there are theories about Jephthah's daughter and what happens to her. Up in the Middle Ages, a theory developed that he didn't, just sac- he didn't sacrifice her, but he-, he gave her into the service of the temple, of the tabernacle, the- to-, to work with the priests. Sort of like Samuel. Hannah gave Samuel. But the evidence in the, in the text and in the-, in the words that are used are pretty clear that she lost her life. And we're appalled at that. And yet, we may not throw our loved ones into a flaming volcano and we may not plunge a knife into them, but there are times when we are so enamored with what we want that we're willing, even hesitantly, but we're willing to sacrifice people to get it. We're willing to push people aside we're willing to sacrifice people we love in order to accomplish the things that are our dreams, our desires, things that make us feel better about ourselves. I suspect every one of us, in some form or another, might be able to look back at our lives and, and know the opposite side of that and to understand that people we have loved have done that to us. Maybe parents or siblings or grandparents, or best friend, who in, the, in, the, in their goal to reach what they wanted threw us under the bus. And it hurts. It's painful. And despite what we feel, we are continually tempted to do that about other people. And sometimes it's family, often it's the people who are closest to us, but it isn't limited to that. Sometimes it's people we work with, or it's people who are who live around us. It's people who are connected to our lives, and it's not as though we're we're doing bad things. Often it's because we're so passionate about good things. You know, it, it's, it's it's those times when when we feel that what we the idea in our minds and the way we see things is so right. And just and good. And it will be so helpful to the place where we work or, or to uh, uh, the place where we live. The people in our family. And we become so passionate about it that we don't even realize sometimes the carnage that we're leaving behind us in order to accomplish it. Because we have bought into the idea that God is most concerned about success. God's most concerned about end results. And all that matters is getting to that end. Because this is good. It's good for the church. It's good for the place where we work. It's good for the place where we live. It's good for our, for our, our family. These are good things that we're thinking about. And we're so enamored and passionate about them that we don't even realize how many people we are hurting in order to get there. With our biting words by shoving people aside and ignoring people and 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 forgetting about people's feelings. We're just focused on getting to the end. And something in us has believed what our culture tells us is that that's what God is most concerned about, getting to the end. And He's not. It's not as though the end is unimportant. But when I read the Scriptures, what I find is that God is... is Just as as concerned, if not more so, about the journey that gets us to the end. We forget that we are not called to win. We are called to love. We are not called to success. We are called to faithfulness. faithfulness and love are proven not by getting to the end, but by the journey in the process of getting there. If because of your life, dozens of people come to Christ, how awesome. But if in the process of bringing people to Christ, you ignore your family, you reject your family, you shove your friends aside, you hurt people... What have we really gained? What, what has the kingdom really been... What's really been accomplished for the kingdom? And we, we forget that it's about the journey as much as it is about the end. And it's about the way we treat people. And I have discovered that God is, is so so interested in how we go through the journey because it's in the journey that we grow and mature and we learn what it means to be a follower of Christ. And getting to the right end is about obedience and faithfulness and love as we move forward on the journey. Why do we struggle so much with that concept I think it's because we're, we're fascinated with control. You know, we've got this idea in our mind of what things should look like. And, and we believe this is the right plan. This is, what it should, this is what it should be. And we are enamored with controlling everything in order to get to that point. And anyone who might be opposed to us or might have a different opinion than us is tossed aside. Because we love control. And I think that's rooted in our issues of disappointment and rejection and insecurity. Just like Jephthah. Everything you see in Jephthah's life, it comes back to this feeling of insecurity that he grew up with. Of being an illegitimate child and then being rejected by his family and his town. And that hurts. And that sticks with you. And we understand that. Because we live in a world where people disappoint us and hurt us and are insensitive to us. And every single one of us struggles with insecurity. You pick the person who you think has the most confidence in the world and I can guarantee you they struggle with insecurity and our insecurity drives us to want to prove that we have value and worth and significance and in our culture that's about results that's about success in the church it's about how many people come to your church how many people become christians how much money are you taking in you know that those are the things that the church tends to measure And we tend to value people based on the results and the end. And those things aren't unimportant. But we can become so enamored with mission and vision and getting to those ends that we're willing to to hurt people in the process of getting there. Because we want value and we want to feel worthwhile. And our insecurities drive us continually to think about success. And about worth and about value. And when that's what's driving us, when the end result and success, and when all we can think about is control, then ultimately, eventually, our relationship with God is going to be about making bargains. About making deals. And so we pray... God, if you, if you make this relationship happen, I will go to church every Sunday. Okay, I will go to church three out of four Sundays for the rest of my life. If you get me out of this mess, I'll become a missionary. If you give me this successful moment, I'll pray every day for two hours. What's so intriguing about that mindset is that that assumes that we have anything that God needs. That mindset assumes that we could offer God something that he doesn't already have. It's a really puny, small view of God. That's the mindset of the gods in the nations around Israel. The gods that they worship are... Are, are capricious and, and, and manipulative. And, and the, the very core of their being is antagonism toward human beings. And you can see that in their creation stories. When you go back and look at their creation stories, human beings come into existence either at, by, by an accident, they didn't mean to create them, or because they are, human beings are a tool to use against the other gods, or human beings are created as a means of punishing another god. And so their gods, they don't don't think favorably on human beings. They hate them. They're a menace. They're a nuisance. And that's what makes our creation story so fantastic. Is that God creates human beings because he wants to. Because he wants relationship with us. And he loves us. We are important to him. We're valuable to him. And so when we start thinking about about who God is to us, we don't have to manipulate God into doing good things for us. We don't have to make bargains with God. God just loves to do good. That's what Jesus says in in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. He says, you know, I want you to ask and seek and knock because God wants to respond to you. And if you human beings who are, are so messed up Love to give good gifts to your children. How much more your Father in heaven, who created you and loves you, wants to do good for you. We don't have to bargain with God. We don't have to manipulate God into doing good for us. We don't have to trick God into into answering our prayers. He loves to answer our prayers. In fact, God wants to do more good for us than we even want to ask Him. That's why Jesus says, come on, ask. Don't be hesitant. Because your father loves to give good gifts to his children. I think that's what's so amazing to me. When I think about the end results of this story you know they do win the battle but in making this bargain with God in, in making this rash vow with God yeah Jephthah wins the battle and he becomes the leader but he has no descendants his family line ends with him And as we talked last week, that's one of the most significant elements of being human in the world at that time is to have descendants who will carry on your name. And because of this rash vow, this bargain with God, this attempt to control, yeah, he gets a victory, but man, what he loses. And you and I make bargains with God and... We may get some things out of that, but man, what do we lose? More than anything, we lose an understanding of who God is as the one who loves us and is for us and wants to do good in us. But because of this vow, the whole story sort of gets turned around. You probably read this week about the the whole thing with the replacement officials in of the National Football League. You know, if you watch the game, I'm a Packers fan. Man, that really bugged me when I watched that game Monday night and they lost because of the, you know, these replacement officials. And I was irritated. But what struck me as interesting is that the next day on Tuesday had tons of articles about these replacement officials. Not just on ESPN, but all other kinds of news outlet media. Just, you know, regular news, not sports stuff. People were talking about it, writing about it. And Wednesday, more articles. And Thursday, more articles. And it struck me, nobody's talking at all about the game. Nobody's saying, so how did the Packers play? How did the Seahawks play? Who, you know, who scored the touchdowns? Who, who played well? Who didn't? Well, nothing about that. It's, every article was about these replacement officials. And when you read the story of Jephthah, what do you think about? What should have been a story that was, that, whose headline was, God does a great victory through Jephthah for Israel has become, Jephthah makes a stupid, rash vow that costs his daughter her life. And that's what trying to control God and trying to control life can lead us. Everything gets turned around and the focus of our lives and the focus of our prayers is not on God anymore, it's on us. Here's the amazing thing. When you get to the New Testament, Jephthah's mentioned one time in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, this litany of all of these great people of faith. The writer says in verse 32, uh, what more can I say? I don't have time to talk about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and, and Samuel and the prophets who do all these great things for God. And when I read that, I think, That's surprising and it's also a little bit irritating. God, this is not the person we want to hold up as follow them. And it reminds us that that God understands that we are complex people. And sometimes we make mistakes. And sometimes we do things that, that cost other people and hurt other people. But at the center of all of our humanness and our struggle... To be what God wants us to be, at the center of that is God's never-ending grace. And the Jephthah is a story of God's grace, in spite of. And I would suspect that it's not going out on a limb very far to say that if we were honest, every one of our lives is a story of God's grace. In spite of. God doesn't give up on us. And we know that because he doesn't give up on Jephthah. And we make mistakes. And we hurt people. And we get ourselves into situations that we wish we weren't. And the one constant is God's grace. God is calling us. To surrender, to take our hands off, to work hard, to do what we need to do, to care about the world, to be involved, but to do it with our hands off. And instead of making bargains with God, instead of trying to control God, instead of trying to manipulate God, to trust God. Because we believe that God is good. And merciful and gracious. And He's for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace in our lives. You know how often we try to control stuff and we try to control you. Forgive us. Help us to release our grip and to take our hands off. And to live in the joy of your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Amen. In the prayer of confession that's printed in your bulletin. Please stand. And let's pray together in unison. O God, your being is love, and all your works toward us are mercy. Forgive us when we stray from our confession of faith into thinking that you are like the gods of this world, who demand destructive sacrifices in exchange for their favor. Cleanse us from the injustice that goes hand in hand with idolatry. Illumine our minds with knowledge of God by your Spirit, whoever points to Christ, that we may return to you in true repentance, acknowledging you as the source, the giver, whose attitude toward us is one abounding and unfailing generosity and steadfast love. In the name of Jesus Christ, who trusted you through death to new life. Amen.
2: to the King who reigns over all and never changes or turns unfailing justice unfading grace whose promises remain yes your promises remain now unto the King